Hello, everyone. Welcome to Bunga Cast, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Wednesday, the 22nd of June, and uh, fashionably late, as we like to be. This is an episode on Ukraine and the war that has been going on in Ukraine. Um, we say fashionably late because um, lots of people have been nagging us to do an episode, get an expert on to discuss what's going on in Russia, what's going on in Ukraine. And we've been not resistant to it, but um, we felt that there was no rush. Let's try to get a grasp on what's actually evolving um, before we actually do an episode. Um, and, you know, screw your 24-hour news cycle. We're on a, whatever, six-month news cycle. So uh, this is this is good. We're, we're thinking long-term. If no one else is, then that's our job. We're thinking long-term. So here we are. I'm here, of course, as always, with Philip Cunliffe. Hello. And with George Hoare. Hey. So, I mean, just to set this up, I was uh, in Europe uh, last couple of weeks doing events in Germany, which uh, you might have caught. Uh, there's the video of it out there if you want to watch that, some really interesting discussions. Um, and there were U- Ukraine flags everywhere. Now, everybody who lives in <laughs> in Europe is probably like, well, duh. Um, but at least me living in South America, where um, we have other fish to fry, uh, it was still kind of something that struck me, uh, the degree to which you know, Western publics have rallied behind Ukraine in such a visible way. Um, But I mean, you guys have been living this and it's been fairly obvious. Um, But what are your thoughts on it? Because I mean, you guys would, I think, as we've discussed on this podcast before, defend Ukrainian sovereignty and are against the war and against Russia's invasion. Um, So why aren't you guys also waving little blue and yellow flags? Well, we we have fish to fry. I'm calling from, from London, the home of fried fish. So we we have lots of fish to fry. No, I think it it, it is striking. This is it, it is the return of um, liberal nationalism, but not people's own nation, but another nation. It is you know it is it is striking the the extent to which and we've made we've talked about this quite a bit on the podcast already. The extent to which people are prepared to 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 embrace um, Ukrainian, not just the people, but the the flag specifically, the you know the aspects of Ukrainian nationalism. I think that is something which you know wouldn't have expected at the at the the outset of um, of all of this. Yeah, I mean, I'd agree. That was it was perhaps the most astounding aspect of the whole phenomenon, at least in the West, is the extent to which the cause of Ukraine became kind of um, the cause, you know, the cause of the world, at least in the Western world. Obviously, not the world at large, but also that it was very kind of. Um, you know, cross class as well. I mean, this is the thing that struck me seeing Ukrainian flags in rural um, working class areas of Kent that I live in. Well, I don't live there, but I mean, Kent is the part of the country that I live in. And seeing the Ukraine flag in those er- in rural working class parts of Kent, not just on kind of, um, you know, university campuses and so on. That was really striking. Um, and so I think there was kind of the there was an upsurge of popular feeling of sympathy for Ukraine uh, in the face of, uh, you know, very kind of naked and outright aggression by Russia. But also, and as we've said before, um, you know, the there is also deep rooted hostility towards Russia, which has been kind of programmed into Western public life for many years, not least as part of knobs, right? Um, neoliberal order breakdown syndrome. So that was, that wasn't a surprise, but the fact that there would be, um, a kind of uh, a celebration of national independence in the context of British public life, given that national independence has been so, um, 
you know, stymied and criticised and downplayed in the context of Brexit, that flip was really striking. Um, and beyond that, I think it's genuinely very hard to get a sense of what's happening. You know, so I mean, I in you know, in the partly because um, the Russian state media has been you know kind of repressed on social media, but also um, the plug was pulled on Russia Today, the television network in the UK. Um, and most of what we get is, you know, in the um, with the Western media, told from the viewpoint of um, what's happening on Ukrainian on the Ukrainian front line. Um, but then kind of other stuff trickles back, you know, I've got Russian friends or people who are connected to um, people in Russia. And they're the ones who filter back kind of images and points that you don't see on um, on the Western press. For instance, you know, that the um, that there was never an attempt to take Kiev, but actually it was a military feint and so on. So all of this is, um, you know, I think it's hard to cut through, basically. Yeah. And so this is why having the guest on that we have today, I'm hoping that will help us to do that a bit with our listeners as well. Well, yeah. I mean, I, final, I thought you were confessing to be a, I thought you were confessing to be a, a hop farmer, actually, you know, part-time hop, hop farmer, part-time academic there, Phil. Um, and I'm glad you cleared that up for us. Um, but I just, I, I have a question about this nationalism thing, because although I agree that there's, you know, it's framed as a defense of uh, Ukrainian independence, Ukrainian sovereignty against Russia, there's also an element of it being a kind of civilizational struggle against what Russia is seen to represent of kind of, uh, you know, the values of autarky and authoritarianism against like liberal West, you know, we have uh, gays and social yeah. liberalism and, and Russia doesn't. So it's, I, I wonder how much it is an, a rallying to the Ukrainian nation and more a kind of civilized, you know, a civilizational struggle, not that I'm buying into that idea, but that it's, you know, kind of tacitly at least conceived in the minds of Western liberals as a civilizational struggle it in is, the same yeah. way in mirror image of what uh, Putin is trying to do. Yeah, I mean, there are elements of that, but I mean, you know, that's the kind of the inflation, uh, the this kind of Manichaean politics and the inflation into more you know, kind of grandiloquent visions of what's at stake. Um, you know, I mean, it's propaganda, right? The idea that there's a, that there are civilizational stakes. I mean, you know, so you could make the case, I guess, that the risk of a world war is real. Um, and so to that extent, there are civilizational stakes, but the idea that it's kind of Western civilization versus Oriental despotism or Eastern backwardness and the nudes czar in russia blah 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 i mean you know that's mostly nonsense obviously yeah you also want to be careful of of, of buying into this and and then sort of saying well the you know the west has lost its way and we just need to you know to stick up for the the good old-fashioned values of of war and just killing russians or whatever it is that you know people are are, are putting out there Okay, well, uh, what you're going to hear now is Phil interviewing Richard Sakwa, uh, who, if you don't know, Phil introduces him shortly at the beginning of the interview. So you're going to hear this interview about Russia's intentions, about a new Cold War, the goings on in Ukraine and what the strategic possibilities are, what the uh, end game might look like. And then uh, the second half of that is for patrons only. It's at patreon.com slash bungacast, where um, you hear more about what Putin's thinking might be, the so-called dual state in Russia, um, what post-Putin Russia might look like, as well as a wider view of what the 
consequences of the disintegration of the USSR have been now 30 years on. And of course, at the end of that, we will have the after party where we'll pick through the bones of everything that we've just heard. So if you're interested in hearing the whole of this interview and the after party, that's at patreon.com slash bungacast. If you're enjoying BungaCast, uh, please do give us a review. Review us at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. It'll help other people find out about the podcast. So if you're enjoying it, it's uh, nice to be shared with other people too. Now catch you on the other side. Richard Sackway is a colleague of mine at the University of Kent, due to retire in September this year. And as I mentioned previously in episodes 256 and 257 that we had on French politics, I'm taking the opportunity of my leaving Kent to engage with some of my colleagues here on this pod. Richard is a renowned expert on Russian politics, a prolific author with textbooks, popular books, political biographies, and scholarly monographs under his belt, including most recently Deception, Russiagate, and the new called Cold War, which was published in November last year, and forthcoming The Lost Peace, How We Failed to Prevent a Second Cold War, which is coming out in April next year, in addition to plenty of other books. Richard also had the dubious honor of being identified by Paul Mason on his insane conspiratorial flowchart of enemies of the state that was leaked to the Grey Zone website. Richard, uh, welcome to the show. And how does it feel to be living rent-free in Paul Mason's head? Well, it's not a place I'd really like to be, to be honest. Uh, and uh, <laughs> one has to say that after all these years, it's not a place I expected to be, to be at the receiving end uh, of what is potentially quite a threatening situation. I mean, I'm not even thinking of uh, state agencies, but uh, the atmosphere, of course, of persecution is so intense. For example, today I heard that the Russia Visa Centre in London has been repeatedly attacked, paint thrown at it, windows uh, attempted to be smashed, and it's had to move. Now that we've come to this, uh, it is so shocking. Yeah, indeed. That's not surprising, but shocking, nevertheless. Yeah, indeed. Um, so you're coming to the end of a long and illustrious academic career. Um, but before we get into some of your scholarly contributions, intellectual contributions and so on, I wanted to ask a little bit about, a bit about your background, because I think it will be interesting to our listeners. But also you dwell on this somewhat in your book on the Donbass War, which was published a few years back with, entitled Frontline Ukraine. And you mentioned there that your father was an exiled Polish officer who would have ended up in Katyn had he not escaped and how he subsequently fought with the British in North Africa and Italy. And so I'm genuinely curious as to um, as to how this plays, you know, how this figures in your own outlook on world affairs. And I suppose the question, um, how does a scion of the officer class of the mm. interwar Polish Republic end up becoming an expert on Russian politics? Well, he wasn't so much an officer class. Suddenly he became an officer, but he was a reservist. And in the between the wars, he was an economist, my father, uh, in Velikopolsk, not far from Poznan. Uh, so he was part of that cohort who did the training um, from Gordno to Lviv, Lviv, as it's known nowadays, uh, up and down. Uh, and so that was all, this whole part of the world clearly uh, intrigued me. And of course, the fact that we were living in exile. And so there's all of this vast literature about exile and displacement. And uh, I suppose a sort of nostalgia for a home that you never knew. 
And so that uh, um, drew me to it. Plus, of course, the overlay, apart from the geopolitics of it, uh, there was the um, ideological overlay, because clearly uh, Poland in those years was uh, communist Poland. And uh, as a boy, we used to get, about it, you know, after Gomułka, things uh, after 1956 became slightly uh, more open. And uh, we would receive uh, on our you know, f distant corner of, of England um, journals from, uh, from Poland. And so uh, the life of Warsaw, Życie Warszawa, for example, with endless pictures of the old city being rebuilt and, of course, the whole ethos of communist restoration and all the rest. So uh, the two things came together, so the, 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 the ideological side of it and the geopolitical side. And of course, all of this came to a head over the the conflict over Ukraine uh, over the last few years. You're also a member of the Communist Party here in the UK, the CPGB. How did this shape your intellectual development and how far would you style yourself a Marxist? Well, the CPGB, of course, at that time had become Euro-communist, and that was the angle which I took. Uh, and so it's very much a Gramscian, um, non-violent uh, approach, but I suppose in, uh, suffused or informed, let's put it this way, by a Marxist critique of, uh, of well, a, a vision. And of course, this was our colleague, uh, David McClellan, for example, about what was called in those days, the, or soon afterwards, the epistemological break, the more humanistic Marx. And of course, that was the side to which I tended. Uh, uh, and so not, not the Leninist version, because Gramsci, Antonio Gramsci, of course, the inspirer of this Euro-communist tendency was about uh, hegemony, about leadership, about a, a united and then, of course, I traveled as a student and went, for example, to Bologna, where in Emilia-Romagna, you would have tens of thousands of people gathered. And then it was cross-class workers, of course, but uh, bourgeois ladies and all the rest. Uh, so it was a vision of how a popular movement can become genuinely popular using ideas of uh, you know, genuine emancipation uh, and genuine overcoming the alienation, which uh, is so prevalent in our times. In fact, of course, in those days, and the failure of Eurocommunism has intensified it to the uh, utmost degree. It's interesting, and um, perhaps we'll come back to Eurocommunism a bit later on when we get into talking about the um, the end period of the Cold War. Um, but I suppose turning more directly to the matter at hand, uh, the Ukraine war itself, uh, it seems to me that what's happened uh, with the, um, I mean, in the last few years, but obviously most explicitly with the invasion of Ukraine earlier this year by Russia, that it's essentially a vindication of the very pessimistic prognosis that you laid out in frontline Ukraine. So could you briefly summarize your thesis in this book and how it might, how um, the previous cycle of conflict laid the ground for the invasion earlier this year. Yes, absolutely. Um, uh, this conflict, um, as you um, suggest, was uh, predictable. I predicted it, and many others did, of course, and it was avoidable. And this is the tragedy of the situation. Uh, it was a conflict, though, 30 years in the making because of the failure to establish a genuinely transformative peace at the end of the Cold War. Uh, and of course, we then had a, you know, a conflict between two models, uh, which I describe in the lost peace between a, uh, I mean, both rather good, by the way, in, in, a in some sort of uh, 
angle, Europe whole and free, which was the extension of the US-led uh, Western hegemony or the Atlantic power system, the European Union and NATO. And on the other side, a Gorbachevian idea of a pan-continental system. So you have this big macro uh, tension going on. At the same time, you have the particular model of Ukrainian statehood after 1991, which uh, attention, which uh, is extremely unpopular, as you can imagine, amongst our nationalist friends uh, in Ukraine, uh, who basically insisted on a rather narrow vision of a monolinguistic, even though, of course, uh, Russian was was allowed and it was used in uh, in public and in private uh, discussion, but it was given uh, a very weak and an ultimately no civic uh, formulation and uh, constitutional uh, um, consolidation. And uh, against them I in that vision of a rather uh, nationalistic vision of Ukraine, which then puts it in the context of post-colonialism, which it then sees the whole struggle against Russia as anti-colonialism, which I think is a mistaken model, uh, though elements of it, of course, are applicable, uh, against a more... Uh, uh, multicultural, let's use that word, but a more generous, open-ended uh, vision of Ukraine in which all the multiple people and territories which uh, are a part of that state were given full expression to their cultural and identities. That includes, of course, not just Russians, but Hungarians, Romanians and Poles and many, many others, of course. Uh, so, uh, And this is the tension uh, which was then exploited by the expanding European uh, powers and the Atlantic system, which already, I mean, I mean, it isn't just me saying it. If you remember uh, Samuel Huntington, the clash of civilizations, talked about Ukraine as a cleft state. So, you know, this was a, a standard analysis, but I tried to give it a bit more substance and make it a more, as I've always tried to do in my work, to give it a dynamic element to say this is a tension, which I suppose is a sort of Marxist to say there's a there's a contradiction in play, uh, which uh, I certainly think it's, it was a contradiction, but it was not uh, what we would call an antinomy, which cannot be resolved. Contradictions can be resolved in the Marxist lexicon, uh, and this one could be. But of course, it takes leadership, it takes understanding, and I was certainly trying to provide understanding, conceptual understanding, but of course, uh, wasn't a leader in any uh, way at all. You've mentioned, so this is, I mean, this is a point that I took from, from frontline Ukraine, was the clash between this, what you, as you put it, this monist kind of vision of Ukrainian nationalism versus a more pluralist um, perhaps federal vision of uh, the Ukrainian state that took into account particularly the sensitivities of the um, Russian-speaking citizens of eastern Ukraine. Um, one thing that seems to have come out of reporting on the war, and I'd be interested to hear um, how much store you put by it, is the fact that the brutality and all the kind of upheaval and violence that is associated with the conflict has helped forge Ukrainian nations so that even those... Um, even those Russian-speaking Ukrainians or Eastern Ukrainians who might have been more um, sceptical of the central state in Kiev, that as a result of the invasion, as a result of the conflict, they're cleaving more tightly to, um, to a more centralized vision of Ukrainian nationhood. And so that paradoxically, um, Vladimir Putin has ended up creating a Ukrainian nation where previously there wasn't one. How do you, what do you make of those accounts? Do you find them plausible? And um, do you think it might play out in terms of how the conflict ends? 
Undoubtedly, it's a factor. This was certainly uh, argued after the 2014 Euromaidan events and then the uh, conflict in Donbass, which argued already at that stage that Putin was the great nation builder um, in Ukraine, not the state builder, but the nation builder to give that sense of identity. Already in 2014 and onwards, you had a, a lot of people, um, I remember speaking to the director of the Kiev Murkhler Academy, who said that they were no longer speaking Russian at home and they'd shifted to Ukraine. So absolutely. And of course, this abominable war uh, clearly is going to uh, forge because naturally, if you're attacked, you're going to have consolidation. Uh, uh, but at the same time, it's uh, it's not. I mean, in Ukraine, it's, you know, very you know, dynamic and open society in all sorts of ways. In fact, it's been always a very democratic one uh, all the way since 1991. Um, I mean, this nationalist vision, which I said earlier, also had a very wide vision at the same time within that. So even that vision could wasn't necessarily um, entirely um, repressive. So uh, the yeah, so, so indeed the, this national identity. But what sort of national identity is now being forged? And this is the it certainly will have an effect. The already over the last few years since 2014, we've seen the. Uh, you know, no longer not just simply decommunization, not just de-Leninization de with the uh, what's it called Leninapad, the destruction of Len statues of Lenin and so on, but also de it's, it was increasingly seen as de-Russification, the pulling out by its roots of Russian culture, which has been entwined in one way or another for over a thousand years. Uh, so you know, I, when Putin said that Ukrainians and Russians are one people at one level only. Uh, it, it it was true, just in a sense, you could say that the, the, the English, the Scots and the Welsh are one nation, if you like. But of course, that doesn't mean to say that they should be one state. And I make that distinction very, very plain. And of course, I would certainly not endorse that, um, uh, that they're one state. No, but within the framework of different states, I, I think a more generous, open hearted settlement, which takes into account. I mean, just recently I had an online conference and this was a professor and it's just typical, a professor in St. Petersburg had two brothers fighting in the Donbass, the People's Republics, uh, and his sister lived in Kiev. So, you know, what, there will be conf consolidation. But in those years, we've seen, you know, in some ways, people have argued that Ukraine is one of the most zombified nations on in the world because it's got the harshest language laws of any country in the world. It's got the harshest media laws of possibly any country in the war in the world. And so, the, what what sort of media and access to it? And of course, the West has fallen in with this Ukrainized vision of the world, which is very dangerous. And I don't think personally. It's good for the Ukrainian people. I've always wanted a generous, open, democratic, sovereign Ukraine. And I fight for that to this day. Um, so uh, which which has got a generous and open settlement. Uh, but what I don't like is when the nation building project is seized by a very narrow elite. And uh, yes, of course, it's alienated people. But we're going to see, of course, possibly a you know, a, a long term partition of the country, which will uh, just entrench a conflict that like we see in North and South Korea and others uh, in the world today for a long time to come.
you know, so that's, I mean, it's interesting what you say, and perhaps we'll come back to uh, the question of um, partition in terms of how the conflict might, what a conflict settlement of some sort or other might look like. Uh, the other thing I wanted to talk to you a bit about is you've insisted, and I remember again, this early on in discussions so, uh, that we had, I remember one particular dinner, which was um, in the aftermath of um, the university strikes of 2018, we went out for dinner uh, with the speaker who was invited and you came along and you insisted then that the Ukraine war, um, the potential for a nuclear confrontation to evolve out of the Ukraine war, and this was back in 2018, and it's a point that you've made since. And again, I mean, you know, it's a point now which is being more wide, you know, it's a concern that is more widely felt. So you've insisted the Ukraine war brings the world the closest it's been to nuclear war since the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962. Could you elaborate a little bit on why you think this is the case? Why is it so particularly dangerous compared to other, you know, previous geopolitical crises between East and West that have happened since 1962? Yeah. The first Cuban Missile Crisis took place uh, in the first Cold War, as we call it, Cold War One, as people nowadays uh, describe it. Uh, and, you know, clearly afterwards, there was a whole gamified uh, strategic arms control and so on. But even that first, even before then, people basically understood the parameters. There wasn't going to be a pushback against Soviet dominance of Eastern Europe, as some, as even Churchill, I think, in 1945 was suggesting. There were guardrails, there were limits. And so for a long time, we've been arguing, I certainly have, that the second Cold War is far more dangerous than the first because it's, it doesn't have limits. It doesn't have really uh, a framework. It's very much more, uh, it's less focused, if you like, of, you know, the old ideological conflict of communism versus capitalism. But that doesn't mean to say it's any less entrenched. You know, The words of democracy versus autocracy is often bandied about. What we've seen instead is a slow motion Cuban Missile Crisis focused on Ukraine, where you have uh, an immovable object which uh, meets an irresistible force. Uh, and uh, clearly, you know, it, it's got the potential to escalate because both sides, and in fact, with the third side, it's now becoming, and it's quite clearly, a proxy war of Russia against the collective, or what I call it the political West, uh, that this political West, and, you know, are beginning to see it, and Biden and others have actually used the term as an existential conflict. And when we start using that sort of language of existential struggle for existence, then there's almost no limits to you know, the escalatory potential. And if you remember, you know, the great architect of uh, the escalation ladder, Herman Kahn, way back, you know, I think he was the model for Dr. Strangelove and uh, that 44 I think rungs on the escalation ladder. Once you start, and we're talking about starting possibly of battlefield nuclear weapons. Once you start, you go up that rung, that ladder, you know, once the taboo is broken. So yes, I think just the very language is ideological mobilization. I mean, when last did we see, for example, a Russian agency in London being attacked by paint and, you know, being, and Russian citizens being banned and so on? So this is deep. And of course, the Ukrainians are fighting for, uh, as a state for their life, of course, as well. So there's no end to the escalatory potential when Zelensky, even before, a year before the war, said that the goal now is to retake Crimea. Well, you know, if you're going to start talking like this, well, it's a sort of talk as if, you know, in 1945-46, uh, I say some people in London did mention it, but Washington said, no, basically we accept that the Soviet advance where it got to in, in the, in the division of Berlin has to be accepted. Well, 
we're not, there's, you know, the, our leadership, and just one final point, um, is, of course, the quality of leadership today is so abysmal. Uh, all, all everywhere that uh, you know, all across the European Union, in London, of course, and in Washington, you could hardly um, make up a more ineffective leadership team at the moment. So, what is a plausible? If just to kind of, I suppose, again, um, concretize this a bit more, what? for you would be a plausible scenario through which the conflict could escalate into nuclear war. So you've mentioned kind of Zelensky stating a war aim is taking back Crimea. So could you, would say a, uh, would a, a Ukrainian offensive uh, on Crimea, would that be a plausible scenario for escalation? And would escalation not require Russian losses on a scale that we've thus far not seen? Yeah. Uh, you know, on the one side, you could say this is uh, a war which is uh, Mark Milley, the head of the US general staff and others said, you know, we're in for the long haul. And so this could be just a first world war slug, uh, slug it out in the trenches, which is uh, possible. But it's a war that uh, Russia cannot lose and Ukraine cannot win and vice versa. And so uh, we're talking about if one side or the other is collapsing. So at the moment, if it is just simply a stable, more or less stable, with Russia making slow but steady advance. But of course, the Ukrainians even uh, not, not long ago sunk uh, the Moskva, the Russian ship. They attacked uh, objects, the, um, uh, the, the drilling um, platforms, oil platforms uh, in the Black Sea. And of course, in the last uh, time, recent times, there's been much talk of an attack on the Kerch Bridge that one across uh, the Straits. At that point, that would be an escalation. Uh, the United States has been providing long range artillery, uh, but saying you mustn't uh, not range so you can attack Russia itself. But it has been attacked. We've seen attacks on recruitment posts, uh, on oil refineries within Russia itself. So, you know, it, and it could go in any number of directions. And that is why I've been with, you know, continually be calling for some sort of moves towards de escalation, ceasefire. Uh, before it gets completely out of hand. I mean, ultimately, I mean, Russia is making slow incremental gains. And of course, it has not committed the mass of its forces yet. So uh, it can be in for the long haul. And uh, of course, the United States is saying, we'll support Ukraine for, you know, at what point will they start be providing even more offensive weapons? So on the geopolitics of the conflict, uh, you've tended, as you've mentioned already, you've tended to frame it in terms of a new Cold War. And I wanted to probe a little, or I suppose um, test a little this framing. So, I mean, given Russia's relative decline from the status of uh, Soviet superpowerdom and the fact that it is matched in military and economic terms by the aggregate size of the NATO states, and also, when you factor in the fact that you know the likely geopolitical consequences will be that Russia will be forced into greater dependence on China, I was wondering whether it might be better to see this as a Cold War, but rather as a Cold War between China and the West, rather than between Russia and the West. And in this case, it would be the first proxy war between China and the US, with Russia thrust into the de facto role of being China's proxy. Yes, I mean, I think there's a lot in that. I think that if we're lucky, 
it's a cold war because uh, a, you know cold war by definition is one that remains cold because uh, people are frightened of nuclear deter uh, escalation it's uh, this was uh, as how it was formulated by George Orwell in 1945 so and if we i mean any you know even the term cold war is uh, difficult because first of all it assumes the same sort of mechanisms as in the first cold war but we're not we're just saying just like the second world war was very different from the first world war so the second cold war will have different actors and you're absolutely right one of the key differences uh, between the first and second uh, world wars was japan's ma major role in the second uh, and this one it's china's um, significant and in, in the asian um, of course, this is why China doesn't like the term Cold War, because it's very Eurocentric and it's a petition and it makes it uh, just an actor on the margins of the major conflict. But you're absolutely right. It's the big players are the US uh, and China, who are uh, since 2018 have become increasingly locked in to what even the Chinese are now calling a Cold War. But they, the movable parts within this Cold War, as always, uh, need to be each examined in its own terms. But then, of course, we should not lose sight of the big picture. And what you've just suggested is exactly uh, important that how does Russia fit in or how does the Russia-European conflict fit into this larger, you know, or three conflicts, the nested Ukrainian conflict, the European one and the global one. So, and all of those are interlinked in a complex way. And China, for example, uh, you know, many in Russia say today, will China consider Russia a, a, a less useful ally uh, if it's weakened in all of this? Uh, will China, to what degree will China support Russia? It has done so. Uh, diplomatically so far, but been very careful not to fall foul of the sanctions regime of the West, understandably so. But on the other hand, some of its second second order companies have been rushing into the Russian market to avoid the big ones um, getting ha hammered. And so, and all sorts of proxy companies. And Iran is an important player in all of this because it's uh, playing, um, you know, an intermediary role. I mean, having used to avoided sanctions for so many years, it's got many, many tricks up its sleeve uh, in all of this. So, you know, indeed, this is a global conflict. Absolutely. Uh, a proxy war, Russia, US. But just in terms of uh, strength, you absolutely got in terms of aggregate. I mean, Russia, in nominal terms, less than two trillion dollar economy. Uh, but of course, in purchasing parity terms, you know, possibly four and a half trillion, but whatever, it's obviously under huge pressure. Uh, but yet the resilience of the Russian economy, as we can see already, has been uh, quite surprising. They're even now producing the old Lada Granta car, which, okay, it doesn't have an airbag, doesn't have this and some of the fancy stuff, but it works. Good old Soviet resilience is back in this sort of spirit. Um, and of course, just bottom line, final point, is that uh, opinion polls show you know, classic consolidation and increased support for Putin in recent uh, months after the war's begun. Uh, especially these sanctions have a counterproductive effect since back to the wall, you know, we'll, we'll slug this out and we'll survive. Yes, we're, we are the smaller power, but of course, uh, with nuclear weapons equal to those of the United States. So, um, well, I mean, the point about the sanctions we'll come back to, but I wanted to speak about the Russian military. Um, again, this is a conversation we had some time ago where you we were speaking about the dismal performance of the Russian military in the 2008 war with Georgia, um, in which apparently the 
the reason the Russians won were was at least partly because the Americans had trained the Georgians to fight in Iraq. And so when they saw tanks coming, they ran in the opposite direction because um, obviously they weren't prepared to they weren't prepared for a conventional war. And I remember you saying that the Russians had modernized their armed forces since the Georgian war, taking uh, drawing lessons from that military experience. And they seem to have performed, you know, fairly effectively in, in Syria, though they weren't really ground forces deployed in Syria. So I was wondering how far, how that um, that story about Russian military modernization, how does that square with Russia's military performance in Ukraine, given the reported high casualties, the loss of materiel and the depletion of the officer corps? Mm. Uh, the, uh, the depth of the military reform since the autumn of 2008 uh, should not be underestimated. It's been reorganized, and of course, there's been uh, since then two ministers of defense, Sudyukov uh, initially and Sergei Shaigu now. Uh, and uh, the, but it's not just, as you say, it's training, it's m- m- much more modern equipment. Of course, in the background and the stuff they're using now are the vast Soviet reserves of tanks, which had been mothballed, which are coming out of mothballed artillery pieces, tens of thousands of them, uh, which many of them were not destroyed, were just taken back over the Urals, are being, you know, almost an, in, an inexhaustible supply. What failed at the beginning was intelligence. And uh, what failed was the attempt. I mean, Russia effectively uh, launched the attack on six fronts each of them underpowered. Uh, in the south, quite successful. They moved up, um, taking parts of Kherson and Zaporozhye, but uh, elsewhere. And this was clearly... Uh, and what I don't think the Russians had fully understood is that the Americans really did have detailed knowledge of the military planning. So when the Hostomel airport was taken north of Kiev, uh, you know the, the Ukrainians knew exactly what the plan was and had prepared for it. So therefore they seized, they stopped the Russians holding that airport and were able to counterattack there. So, but these early uh, things, as always the Russians say, they lose the first battles, but they go on then to win the war. So you're, so you're saying, so the Americans had wind of uh, Russia's military plans. It was some kind of coup on the part of American military intelligence. This is uh, what, I mean, Americans are basically crowing about this. Um, they, 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 Biden even just said it recently. We told uh, Zelensky, he said, the leader of Ukraine, that, uh, um, you know, detailed plans, but Zelensky wouldn't believe us at the beginning. Uh, so, uh, I, mean, the, I mean, I don't think they knew everything, but they knew enough and they could see. Uh, and that particular one, I read a, a detailed study which showed that that particular idea from the north, one of the six prongs, that they did have forewarning of it, yes. So how far that goes? I mean, obviously, one of the big weaknesses of Russia in 2008 was its communications, battlefield command, and so on. Since then, Russia has built a whole new uh, um, general staff headquarters and modern uh, military command post, uh, not just in the main Ministry of Defence building, but slightly uh, elsewhere. And of course, bunkers and all the modern stuff and the communications. In the past, they had to borrow mobile phones to communicate with units. So, uh, yeah, it's... You know, the, the level of which what the United States did know and didn't know, obviously, is, is a secret, but bits are leaking. I don't think they knew as much as they sort of hinting that they did know, but they certainly knew rather more than the Russians would have liked them to know. And presumably the Americans learned from their, I suppose, their proxy defeat in Georgia in 2002, which is why they trained the Ukrainians better with the NATO training that has been going on from even before 2014. 
Yes, the, the 2008 war was a, a warning. Um, and since 2014, uh, the West has made no bones about it, that they were piling in arms and training, NATO was training Ukraine for a forthcoming war. So another analogy, you know, we talked about a Cold War too, and I said, if we're lucky, we have a second Cold War, which stays cold, and effectively that's what it means. It just means we then learn how to manage a conflict. Um, but another analogy, and sometimes I'm, you know, you mentioned the nuclear issue, is that we are possibly in the foothills of World War Three. Uh, that you know, because in a nuclear age, uh, and this is why those who critic criticize the idea of a new Cold War, they say, look, you're just obsessed by the past, you know, like all generals and possibly academics are even worse than generals, that we always fight the last war and that we should adapt our thinking to this new one. And that really in a nuclear age, this is more than a Cold War. This is actually a conflict. You know, people are getting killed in monstrous forms and civilians are being persecuted and all the rest. And of course, a whole nation is under sanctions as a part of collective guilt, which is something quite extraordinary. Usually in the past when sanctions were imposed, they said, oh, we're trying not to hit the civilians and, you know, and so on. This time, not a, not a peep about that, which is also another sign. Uh, so sometimes I would argue, as I said, it's an extended Cuban Missile Crisis, a slow motion one, but perhaps a slow motion slide into a third world war, which, you know, in the nuclear age, you know, we, you know, it, it's destruction. So it's a war, but one which doesn't go into, you know, which is always a potential to go to that nuclear threshold, as I say, because no, and it, you know, I, I think that the leaders in Moscow and Washington are rational uh, and in Beijing, but you know, as we know in the First World War, an accident could happen, some incident, something which is just considered unacceptable. Um, and, you know, any trigger, which, you know, who would have guessed that Archduke, the assassination of his wife, Franz Ferdinand, in uh, June uh, 1914, would lead to, you know, four years of monstrous war and decades of unrest, of course. So I suppose thinking about what the... Um whether what the uh, what I not what a conflict settlement might look like, but I suppose what at least uh, plans are. What do you think Putin's endgame is in the war? Because I remember in frontline Ukraine, you made much of the fact that um, in back in 2014, Russia had made no particular move to annex eastern Ukraine, um, and yet by most recently recognizing the breakaway regions of Donetsk and Luhansk, it has effectively dismembered Ukraine and seems to be. Um, going with the Georgia playbook, which is when they recognize separatist enclaves initially um, and have you know, made them into de facto kind of uh, de facto um, proxy states, I suppose. So how do you how do you read the recognition of the breakaway regions, given that it cuts against what you talked about in frontline Ukraine? And also, what do you think? Um, the Russian leadership and Putin in particular, how they see an acceptable an acceptable end to the conflict. What does that look like for, from in Moscow? Yes, in 2014, um, Putin and over in the following years was criticised for not being harder, not for being uh, too weak. Even some people would argue some of the nationalists uh, who then, of course, put in in the following years, uh, squeezed back into uh, the bottle. Uh, 
uh, and indeed he opposed the referendum in the Donbass republics on the 11th of May 2014. So it was quite clear he 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 wanted because I suppose the one the way people argue is that he still believed that the Western interlocutors you could make a deal with them that they were still you know that they were still dealing what the Putin of today uh, simply doesn't believe you can deal or trust the West in the slightest. This is why you know there's been no relations with NATO. Well, in the autumn they withdrew their delegation from NATO as well. It's just been going down this war of diplomats expelling uh, tranche after tranche of diplomats. And again, much worse than the first Cold War, you know, all the symptoms. Uh, so, uh, so, so where, where you know, it ends, yes, the recognition of the Donbass republics is an irrevocable step. I mean, irrevocable in a purely diplomatic sense, obviously, maybe in a military sense, and nothing is off the table. But uh, it's irrevocable more than that. Uh, just today, reading in Vietnamese, the uh, the fact that now in Kherson they've now established uh, Russian communications and parts of Zaporozhye, uh, Russian television, Russian mobile networks, Russian ruble is now being used, and so I think it's extremely unlikely that Russia now it's not just Crimea we're talking about parts. Plus, Russia is making slow but necessarily steady progress in uh, taking more and more of the uh, the Donbass itself, and then. Possibly, you know, the um, you know, the the peace deal which was on the table at the end of March, the Istanbul meeting, the 29th of March was a ceasefire bracket these territorial issues for perhaps a decade or two uh, and such. Like. And this uh, and, and neutrality for Ukraine, uh, not joining NATO, no deployment of offensive missiles. And so on. so uh, we have, you know, I've got a folder here of dozens and dozens of peace plans. But the bottom line is that the old Ukrainian state, I mean, I, I'm not endorsing it, I'm simply saying a fact, you know, in a sense, and analytically, uh, it, it's going to be very hard to restore. Uh, and the defeat of Russia is almost impossible for the reasons I've suggested, a nuclear power. And of course, all NATO war games since 2014 have shown remarkably uh, within two weeks, uh, the West loses because Russia has what's called escalation dominance it's local and that's why i've been calling for ceasefire could you explain could you just explain a bit more about the two-week scenario and yet what escalation dominance means for our listeners yeah escalation dominance means russia can bring more force to bear at the moment it has and it's close because there's next door uh, Russia is next door to Ukraine, whereas the united states are several thousand miles away uh, and the european armies are you know, have been under-equipped and possibly under-invested in for many, many years. Uh, so they're sending some stuff, but not enough. So uh, the, uh, and as for uh, the two weeks, uh, you know, it's uh, the the um, ability to, uh, yeah, as I say, to, to, to you know, I was going to think of the this, the arrow, the spear, you can actually, Russia can bring two, two elements to a point far more, um, far more effective and for far longer. There are also many reports because so much Western media reporting has been from the Ukrainian side, almost none from the Russian side. But there are talks, you know, out watching and listening to various reports that the, the Ukrainian army has been suffering huge losses in manpower, in personnel and in equipment. Uh, and the stuff that the West is providing is often useless and has been captured and destroyed and it doesn't have the reserves. I mean, we've all been saying this. It's not me. Military people have been saying this for a long time. And so, therefore, 
a ceasefire, which we called for earlier and stopped the war, is to stop the slaughter and the suffering of the Ukrainian people. So that really is the most essential thing at this stage. And then, you know, have a talk. Ultimately, of course, it has to be the decision has to be taken in Washington without London, of course, twice has now uh, insisted. First visit when Boris Yeltsin, Boris Yeltsin, Boris, Boris Johnson <laughs> visited just after the Istanbul talks, and uh, when perhaps uh, Zelensky was thinking of accepting a ceasefire, uh, Johnson said, "No, you must fight on to the end." Of course, the British would love to fight on to the last Ukrainian, uh, as the statement is nowadays. And of course, the second time he went just recently, no peace talks. So this is. You know, terribly sad for the Ukrainian is they're going to lose infrastructure, lose years of development of power stations, of bridges, infrastructure. It's a catastrophe with the war. There has to I mean, all wars end in diplomacy if they end at all. So uh, how do you I mean, aside, so what you're suggesting then is that what it looks like is given the moves that Russia is making in East Ukraine, that it looks like there'll be an effectively a truncated Ukrainian state between um Eastern kind of east these eastern statelets, the so-called People's Republic on the one hand, and some kind of rump Western Ukraine on the other, uh, and that does. I mean, that sounds like. Uh, I mean, how could that be a stable or long-term solution? I mean, to, what does that look like? And I, I suppose, I mean, it's very, it's difficult to avoid analogies. But one thing, you know, one people have spoken about uh, Afghanistan in Europe. So a kind of a conflict zone in which West, the West tries to bleed Russia the way that they did in Afghanistan during the 1980s. Um, or alternatively, you've mentioned kind of a North Korea, South Korea situation where you have an immensely kind of uh, a truncated territory with an immensely militarized, intense border region. Um, is there any, I mean, is there any um, way then to resolve the conflict if Moscow is determined to detach eastern Ukraine from, from Kyiv? Don't forget, of course, that Russia was not determined. The whole point of the Minsk Accords was to return the Donbass republics to Ukrainian No, indeed. And I mean, of, that was a question I also had for you as to why, you know, why it seems, I mean, you kind of answered it, but the question I had in the background was why did Putin not simply in kind of try to seek to militarily implement the Minsk Accords? But I suppose the answer, your answer would be the fact that the, there's so, he simply has no belief that the West Western states are... Uh, interlocutors in any meaningful sense. Would that be right? Well, I mean, Putin, it wasn't uh, him to implement it because it was about the Donbass and it was about Kiev uh, giving them autonomy. We're, you know, we're not even talking about uh, federalization. We're talking about something like Spain, where, of course, Spain is a unitary state, but with uh, deep uh, uh, devolution of powers, just like the UK itself. And, you know, what's so what's so bad about that? I mean, our colleague, Professor Neo. Uh, Leo Zides, of course, is a great expert, and he's been putting forward since 2014 some excellent ideas of how this could work in practice. And you know, he's a great expert. But those, I mean, that's off, and that's off the table now. So, a federal kind of Ukraine is not mm. no longer a solution, presumably, or, on the basis uh, of what you've said. Or devolve, say, yes, that's all over. Uh, and more than that, by the way, it isn't just the east; it's the south, all the way to Odessa, almost certainly, yeah. and also uh, almost certainly Kharkov. Uh, the Russians are back on the outskirts of Kharkov, so. Uh, and we're talking about possibly going once the uh, resistance is broken, because this war at the moment is still the echelon defense built between since 2014. Each each wave behind it is weaker than the one in the front. And when it get, breaks through, it could go to the Dnieper River and then, as you say, a division 
across along the line of the river, river and just bottom line, there won't be a peace settlement. It'll be an armistice where both sides will prepare to fight another day. And so that's that's your essentially that's as optimistic as you're willing to be then about how this this at least this phase of the war draws to an end. If we're lucky, it's an armistice. Um, so you mentioned the Russian economy and the um, I think it's the Fiat plant that was nationalized in Moscow and is turning out the old larders minus the airbags. So I wanted just to talk briefly about the um, kind of the resilience, like you say, of the Russian economy and its turn to autarky under the um, under the imposition of all these sanctions. And I wonder how I mean, aside from the technical details of the economic sanctions, how politically viable do you think this era of autarky is? Um, you know, what happens, for instance, when the Russian middle classes want an iPhone or they resent the damage done to their consumption patterns and standard of living that they've become accustomed to um, over the last 10 years, 20 years or so? Uh, I suppose to summarize, you know, to summarize the question, can Huawei substitute for Apple? Mm. And all the other Chinese telephones, Oppo and all the other companies, yeah, uh, it's uh, the, the Russian shops are full of Chinese um, equipment. And don't forget, uh, Russia signed a long-term agreement with Huawei and ZTE for the uh, development of 5G. So, yes, the Russian middle class will have to do without the IKEA, without the McDonald's. But, you know, maybe McDonald's is very symbolic. It was established as one of the first time... Yeah. Um, um, you know, Western consumer luxury items uh, under Gorbachev in 1990. And uh, I remember the queues in Pushkin Square. And it's now been taken over by a Russian company. First of all, just about two dozen. But he plans to take over the whole nearly 800 strong network. Uh, and it's called Fkusna Itochka, meaning tasty. And that's it, uh, which is not exactly a snappy name, but it's symbolic. Uh, that you know, and but also McDonald's. I'll just say is the double tragedy there is that they were one of the and you know, it's odd you may say me to say this, but they were one of the best multinationals in Russia. They were in for the long haul. They also did very very good local supplies. So um, the, the the meat and the vegetables and so on, baps were all made locally. So. Uh, the fact that Russia, uh, that they've gone now, that these things can continue. I mean, I've known endless reports from Moscow now that life is continuing more or less as normal. The uh, long term, you're absolutely right, is that clearly the middle class, middle class lifestyles is very difficult to travel to the West. But of course, Turkey is still open and there's vast expanses to the East. Putin's speech this week to the St. Petersburg International Economic Forum was remarkably upbeat. He loves giving statistics, and I won't bore you all with that. But inflation is down, growth in manufacturing is up, up, amazingly enough. Um, yes, quality. Yes, there's huge, the semiconductor microchips are, are missing. But of course, they're missing in the West as well. After the pandemic, we had difficulties. Uh, but Russia is, you know, it's got companies and it's moving in. And of course, as I say, uh, the major economies of the East, there's all sorts of subterranean networks and ways in which things are going to be reestablished. But what we're now, the big picture is we're seeing the big sorting at the global level is that basically we have a, I insist on calling it the political West, because the historical West is bigger, it's cultural achievements, it's political achievements over, you know, a thousand, uh, or two, over 2,000 years, two and a half thousand modern political 
uh, cultural Europe and more, of course. But uh, the political West is the one that took shape after during the Cold War, after the Second World War. But if we just, political I just, West, I just want to to push you more, a bit on this. So, but so you're saying essentially the Russian middle classes will accept this, um, perhaps the hit they're going to take to their living standards. They will be happy to substitute with goods, consumption items from from the East, perhaps, and they'll make do with kind of um, maybe black market or gray gray market kind of solutions. You think that won't be a problem for the regime over the long haul? I think, yes, uh, I do think that the shift to the East, the turn to the East is not just China, of course, it's India, uh, Indonesia. There's much talk now of establishing a, a different type of G8, that is uh, four BRICS countries without South Africa, plus uh, a, you know Mexico, Indonesia, um, some others. So th- there's endless talk of, uh, you know, a total. And so on the one side, you'd have the political West. On the other side, you have the East, which will be supplying. And so this middle class and, of course, the Russian middle class has always been a peculiar class. A lot of it is very state dependent, a very large uh, sector. And of course, not just teachers and others, but in the military industry a very, and with their families, we're talking about several million strong. Um, and it's been, in other words, a dependent middle class. This was what uh, uh, Mikhail Khodorkovsky years ago tried to establish a genuine Russian bourgeoisie, meaning an independent class of... You mean the Russian, the Russian oligarch who has eventually ended up in exile? Yes, in yeah. London. Uh, but, you know, he, his vision was a visionary one in, in, the, in the profound sense, because he wanted to establish the business class separate and distinct from the state elite. Uh, he failed, and of course, as you say, he ended up uh, abroad. I mean, he was the most intelligent and able of the uh, new so-called oligarchs. But the fact that Putin defeated Mikhail Khodorkovsky and Yukos and dismantled it means that Russian capitalism today is a type of state capitalism. You know, it's very active in all sorts of ways. It's statist capitalism, let's call it call it like that. And that is a remarkably resilient model in wartime. Yeah. yeah. So I want to talk a bit about your um, kind of what uh, possible, I suppose, what a possible future might look like or possible futures that we've lost in terms of uh, a European settlement um, in the aftermath of the Cold War. And um, this is looking back um, to your book, Russia Russia Against the Rest, when you you criticised the failure to transcend Cold War era security institutions in Europe, um, notably with NATO. And in that book, you invoked a wider image or wider kind of range of possible options for European security, including a vision um, which you um, you spent quite a bit of time on developing and um, elaborating was that envisioned by the French president, Charles de Gaulle. Mm-hmm. And he envisioned a post-Cold War European security architecture uh, that incorporated Russia rather than excluding it. And there's a famous speech of a vision of Europe from Atlantic to the Urals. So could you briefly tell us a bit more about what this um, what this vision might look like in the context of uh, in the context of a post-Cold War Europe? Uh, or what, what it might have looked, looked like, like, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. What it may because it's over. Uh, I'll come back to in a minute. But it's over. Yes. This Gaullist idea in 1959, he made his famous speech, uh, Charles de Gaulle, in Strasbourg, interestingly enough, uh, where he talked, as you say, of this sort of vision of Europe acting as a sort of a, a medium part, though allied with the United States, but separate and with the Soviet Union. And of course, this vision was taken up by uh, um, 
François Mitterrand as well. So some people would call that Gaullist Mitterrand, the pres Mitterrand, the later socialist president of uh, of France. Uh, and of course, Mikhail Gorbachev, the leader of the Soviet Union at that time of reforms in the late 1980s, developed this in his common European home idea, also based in the speech in Strasbourg where de Gaulle had made his speech uh, all those years ago. So this idea of pan-continental unity is a very powerful one. It was in, in Anglo-Saxon circles, it's considered the Gaullist heresy and considered you know, completely against the Atlanticist vision. Unfortunately, this, this battle uh, has been continuing for 30 years. 30 years. Atlanticism versus pan-continentalism. Putin was very keen on this pan-continentalism. In recent years, it was called Bashar Europa, Greater Europe. It's dead. It's dead. For a generation, at least. This idea that Europe from, uh, from Shannon to Vladivostok would be a political unity in that uh, there were ways of doing this. Can I just say that, you know, when Zbigniew Przezinski, who is this great um, Polish American architect and very keen on NATO enlargement, even he, in his famous book, The Europe, the Grand Chessboard, uh, in 1997, argued that NATO enlargement should be accompanied by some sort of pan-continental security structure. So even he understood this had to go. And I've certainly uh, been arguing this for years and had a lot of flack from the Atlanticists. Oh, you're undermining Atlantic unity. Oh, you're a, a Putin stooge because you're driving a wedge between Europe and the United States. No, I want to have obviously good relations with the United States, a dynamic, powerful state. It'd be foolish not to. On the other hand, one, uh, you know, Brzezinski was utterly contemptuous about European powers. There were subordinates, there were subalterns, uh, and uh, they should know their place and don't expect them to, for the United States to uh, you know, sacrifice its own security interests for Europe and so on. I say that after the Cold War, we, we, the unification of Germany was uh, maybe marvellous, but that was only a symbolic of the larger unification challenge which faced us. And I'm sorry to say we fluffed it. And we fluffed it big time, leading to this new Iron Curtain, this new division of Europe and new division of the world, because Europe is now a small appendage to the massive US and to its security concerns. Uh, it's, you know, it's, it's, you know, I've argued for the death of Europe for many, many years in a political sense. And even the more it tries to be geopolitical, the more it loses any sense of itself. On the other hand, Russia, China, India in a slightly more complex manner, Indonesia, that is where the future will be built. And we will become a stagnant, uh, divided, polarized, decaying societies in Western Europe and the United States. It's a catastrophe. And, you know, our own internal divisions are being played out and you know, exposed in the uh, intense hostility towards Russia. Yes, it's, just, it's been an authoritarian system for a few years with massive flaws. Yet, you know, let them work out their own problems in their own time. There was no need for this. And in, the worst thing was to use Ukraine as a battering ram. So, I, you know, I, perhaps it would be absurd to say this, but I will say it, that I, in some ways, have tried to save Ukraine from this fate which it is now suffering by saying, look, don't play the games of others. Become yourself. Friends of all. So briefly, I suppose, so the Martin Jakes vision is the one you subscribe to, that the future lies in the East? Martin Jakes, Mahababani, the Singapore diplomat, and so many others 
Um, and in fact, Farid Zakaria, the post-American world way back in 1909, have all, uh, 1909, have all been, um, uh, you know, arguing in some ways. Yes. I mean, when China rules the world, Martin Jakes, yeah, and so much stuff like this. Yes, I do think so. Uh, I mean, I don't, but my model isn't just simply like that, because I think there's another level going on, and that is a common commitment of China, India, and indeed the Western powers to the international system which we built after 1945. At its center is the United Nations, but it's more than that. It's a whole system of international law, norms, and values. And these values do not belong to the West. They belong to humanity. Of course, we want peace. We want war to be delegitimated as an instrument of policy. Of course, who doesn't want that? The Chinese, of course, buy into it. The Indians, all in, in their own way. And what's been so disastrous since uh, 1989 in this post-Cold War world is that a certain group of states have claimed to be effectively the substitute for the international system. And uh, this is a catastrophic substitution, a usurpation even, you may say. The so-called rules-based order claims to speak for all of humanity with a democracy. Those values are very fine, but uh, they, you know, each state, each country must find their own destiny. Hello, everyone. Alex here. I hope you're enjoying this interview with Richard Sakwa. If you want the rest of it, uh, you'll have to sign up to patreon.com slash BungaCast. Fascinating discussion that ensues about the wider consequences of the disintegration of the USSR, different visions of Russia and what Russia might be, and the struggles within Russia for uh, post-Putin Russia. Anyway, that's all at patreon.com slash BungaCast, followed by our after party, where we pick through the bones of what we've heard. Mm-hmm.